I think that the notion that the change can come quickly in a in a economy of our size or in a hundred trillion dollar world economy that you can just change it in twenty five years in 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 a quarter of a century just it's just it's very ambitious. Welcome to the Hale Report. My name is Lyricuse Hale, and I'm Editor-in-Chief of EconView, and your host today, Friday, April 21st, 2023. EconView, based in Chicago, is a home for independent voices and expert analysis of critical global economic issues. You can also find past podcasts on our website, econview.com, and on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, and all the usual places. My guest today for the 43rd episode of The Hale Report is Daniel Jurgen, Vice Chairman of S&P Global. He was a founder of Cambridge Energy Research Associates and is an expert in the geopolitics of energy and a Pulitzer Prize-winning author. His best-selling books include The Prize, The Quest, and Shattered Peace. He's the co-author of Commanding Heights, which became a popular PBS documentary series. His latest book is The New Map, Energy, Climate, and the Clash of Nations, published by Penguin Press. Welcome, Dan. So good to see you. Thank you so much for joining me today. In the small world category, I was on a call with Stephen Roach this morning, and he said to say hello to you. I I gather the two of you went to high school together. Yeah, we did. In Beverly Hills. Yes, exactly. Uh, 90210. Uh, yes, and Lyric, I'm glad to be on with you, and I have much respect for uh, this this series that you've created and the, uh, the 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 content that you make available. Well, thank you. Let me tell you, our listeners, a little bit more about our guest today. I think we met maybe 20 years ago or so, Dan, yes. at, at about the time of peak oil. And what you said to me then was revelatory to me, both you and Albert Brasson, probably someone else that, that you know. And it led me to rearrange my entire thinking about global energy. Um, within this framework, too, just to let you know, my best call of, ni- of 2022 was $65 in a barrel oil. So I owe that to you. <laughs> it, goes, it, it goes in cycles. And hard to call those cycles for sure. But to begin, as our listeners always know, I um, asked my guests how they became interested in the subject that became their life's work. Um, how did you first become interested in energy and in more broadly in geopolitics? Well, it came from the geopolitics side because of my first book was, in fact, uh, which was grew out of my PhD thesis was on the origins of the Cold War, and then uh, the energy crises developed. And I had a postdoctoral fellowship at Harvard, two years, and I kind of just became obsessed and something of an autodidact on energy. Got involved with energy issues, energy seminars. Started became was recruited to join the Energy Research Project at the Harvard Business School, and that kind of uh, uh, got it all going. I'll say one thing, actually, uh, Lyric, that's interesting. When I was writing Shattered Peace, it never occurred to me that I would be writing another history of another Cold War. But when I was writing the new map, I really began to realize that I was really writing a book about the uh, origins of a new Cold War, 
which we are now uh, living in. Is that what inspired you, in fact, to write the the new map? And what did you discover or what theses did you have previously? Did any of them get revised? Well, you, you know, it's been a progression. Somebody said my trilogy, because there was, there was the, the new map, there was the prize, then there was a quest, uh, and the new map. In between, there was a book called Commanding Heights, the Battle of the World Economy, about moving from state control of economies to markets, which we're now going somewhat backwards from. But um, it was that the world had really changed. Uh, it was changing in terms of trade patterns. I mean, the U.S., eight pre- U.S. presidents in a row kept saying the U.S. needed to be energy independent and it seemed like a big joke. It would never happen. And then there's a shale revolution. And suddenly you saw that the U.S. was shipping LNG to India, was exporting oil. And you realize, so it was literally that the map of, of energy was changing. At the same time, it was so tangled up with geopolitics. And, you know, one of the things I wrote in the book, uh, you know, before the war began in Ukraine before the Russian invasion was that there was going to be a war between Russia and the West over Ukraine because you could just see it coming. And so it, it was funny. Some of the reviews of the new map said, well, is Rice writing about geopolitics in a book about energy and climate? And the reason is evident today about how geopolitics and energy are so tightly bound together. How could you separate them? And, you know, your book, it's called The New Map, but it's really about several new maps, isn't right. it? Yes. It's, it's, it's about America, Russia, China, the Middle East, and then also a, a road map and then climate. And pulling them all together and to kind of start with the, the really big picture, do you think that the demand for carbon fuel will remain steady as a result of all these changes and others in the background, such as demographics? Yeah, I think it's the demographics and where the demographics are. You know, this uh, is now reported that India is ta- overtaking China's world's most populous country. 80% of the people in the world live in developing countries. And that's where the demand growth will be. And so I do see that oil demand, you know, what I concluded, and I'd stick by it in the new map, is that oil demand probably increases until around the early 2030s. Natural gas demand continues thereafter. And they don't they don't just, going back to your word peak, they don't just collapse. They, there's a sort of downward plateau thereafter. So even in 2050, uh, oil and gas will still be important parts of the energy mix, but the energy mix will be much larger and renewables, wind and solar, and probably hydrogen will comprise a, a growing part of the overall energy mix. And what about supply shocks? Um, you know, I've been reading about Guyana. There's some new oil fields there, the Arctic, the South China Sea. Do you think that there'll be major discoveries that w- which will impact supply? Well, one of the things I've, you know, sometimes I'd go back and reread the prize and you see patterns you didn't see before when you were writing it, but I didn't see. And one of them is that every time you have a big new surge of oil supply coming to the system, get a price collapse. And that's what happened in 2014 when the uh, this amazing appearance suddenly of shale, and it just grew at a pace that nothing had ever grown that fast in the world oil and gas industry. Guyana uh, is significant. It's the you know, biggest new thing, and it's the fastest developing uh, uh, offshore oil development really in history, actually. Uh, and it's significant, but it will make up for declines elsewhere. I mean, shale will continue to grow. 
We're going to see capacity grow in the Middle East, but I don't see any big new uh, supply sources, at least at this point, that that aren't on the horizon. You do always have to be surprised, and so often the growth. I mean, shale. No one, but most most people. The textbook said it was impossible. Now the U.S. is the world's largest producer of oil and gas. You mentioned the South China Sea. And that was something I spent a lot of time actually writing about in the new map, because I think it's going to only become more significant geopolitically. And uh, there's often discussion that the Chinese interest in the South China Sea is because of the oil resources in the South China Sea or under the seabed. Uh, our own geologists in our company and geologists I talk to and, you know, in other companies say there are oil and gas resources there. Uh, they're significant for the companies who find them. They're not going to change, uh, you know, really change the overall balance. And by the way, to develop gas in the South China Sea is going to be expensive and it's going to be complicated. I came to the conclusion that the real significance of the South China Sea from an energy point of view, why it matters to China, and by the way, Japan and Korea and Taiwan, is because it's the transit through which so much of their oil, which is so essential to their economy, passes. It's the body of water through which their liquefied natural gas, much of it passes. And so really, the South China Sea, which is probably is the world's most important body of water in terms of world trade, uh, it really matters from an energy point of view, not in terms of what's under the seabed, but rather what crosses on, on top of those waters. You know, my first trip to China, I went to Hainan Island. And at that time, even 1979, there were oil companies already there. Yeah. You so, know, yeah. yeah. So there's clearly there are resources there. But I think altogether, if you look at the amount of oil that's produced there, it's a tiny fraction of world supplies, but it's significant. And of course, it is oriented towards Asia. Now, in the paperback version of your book, you talk about the four ghosts of the South China Sea. Um, I think we, I know our listeners would love to hear about that. Well, I think uh, in in the new map, I spent a lot of time explaining how the South China Sea became an issue, going back to a map that was drawn in about uh, 1935 or 1936, really, and then adopted by the nationalists and then adopted by the, uh, the communists when they came to power. But... Uh, I really wrote that as a, a cautionary tale because in many ways, the situation we're in now kind of reminds one of the situation before the First World War. And so there are four ghosts. They each told a story. Zheng He was a Chinese admiral who built a big fleet and had those voyages and brought ambassadors and people back to China, paying court to China. And he's the embodiment of uh, in a sense of China's claim, historic claim, as they put it, to the South China Sea, saying that their claims based on history. Uh, Hugo Grotius is the father of uh, the law of the sea. And, and he was a Dutch lawyer. And it was very interesting. It was a, um, a, a battle between a Portuguese and a Dutch ship in the South China Sea in the 17th century that led to the... Um, his writing about the law of the sea. And if China says, history says this is theirs, the other countries around the South China Sea and the United States and Australia and Japan and Britain and France 
they look to Grotius that this is this is international waters, not not Chinese territory. And then the other two ghosts who haunted is Admiral Mahan, uh, who was Theodore Roosevelt's favorite admiral, who wrote the book on the history of sea power and so forth about the importance of controlling bodies of water. And I contrasted him with Norman Angel, who wrote a book that often gets uh, cited, uh, but is often miscited, because he wrote a book called The Great Illusion, saying, and people say, oh, he said that the First World War can't happen. He didn't say that. What he said, he said it would be a disaster if it happened economically. And who can deny that it was a disaster? I mean, just look what followed from it. And so it was really meant as a cautionary essay and um, and with the sense that as the tension mounts, as U.S. and Chinese naval ships and aircraft and so forth come close to each other, you could just have an accident that in this fraught situation uh, escalates. And so that story is kind of using history to explain what the stakes are in today and tomorrow's uh, uh controversies. So, you know, it, you had mentioned just before that shale, um, and uh, there is a story in your book, and it's a really interesting chapter to learn. I did not understand all how shale came to be and what a very fraught process it was. It almost didn't happen. It was a kind of determination of certain people that made it happen. And actually, the city of Chicago played a role in, right. do you mind telling that story? Yeah. Yeah. So, uh, I mean, as a writer, and when I'm wearing my historian hat rather than my analyst hat, I'm always amazed by the contingencies and the accidents of history and that individuals do make a difference. And there's a, we'll come back to Tesla on a, on a similar, really in an almost parallel way. So there was this, uh, this, well, it wasn't really an oil man. It was a gas man in Texas named George Mitchell. And, um, he uh, was what's called an independent. He was not a really big company, but he was a substantial company. And he had a gas a contract to supply a substantial part of Chicago's natural gas, which is used for heating and everything like that. And his gas fields were running out. And he became convinced that you could get natural gas from this very dense shale rock. And all the textbooks said it's not possible. Uh, and he read an academic article or a research article in the early 80s and said, well, wait, a, you know, let's try it. And although his company, Mitchell Energy, was a public company, he controlled it. So he had them like 17, 16, 17 years. They kept trying to find the formula to get shale out. And his people said, you know, George, you're wasting your time, wasting your money. He said, well, it's kind of my money. And his, he, he was a stubborn guy. His, I remember talking to his granddaughter, and she said he was a very stubborn grandfather. And he just kept at it. And finally, in the late 1990s, came the first breakthrough on shale, uh, which was using hydraulic fracturing. And then in 2003, at the very moment that the U.S. government was saying the U.S. was going to run out of natural gas and that would have to import a lot of natural gas in the form of LNG. This other company put together, called Devon, put together the hydraulic fracturing. They had bought Mitchell's company, so they had that technology. They put it together with this other thing called horizontal drilling, and that was the beginning of the shale revolution. People didn't take it seriously at first. They said, oh, these small companies will do it. And then the volume started to increase so dramatically. 
Uh, and it, it was started off on gas, and they said it will never work with oil. Well, wait a second. Then somebody said, well, how big, you know, because the, the oil has to be able to flow through the rocks. How, how big is a molecule of oil? And no one quite knew. And research showed you could do it with oil. And suddenly the U.S. went from being the world's largest importer of oil in the world and de deeply concerned about stability of Middle East supplies to being the largest producer of uh, oil and uh, natural gas in the world. And by the way, currently, having only started exporting LNG in 2016, it's now the largest exporter of LNG. So this is a remarkable story. Remarkable. It's an amazing American story. Yeah. And you just say, yeah. you know, it was kind of, you know, one guy who just wouldn't give up. And if his company had been a normal public, you know, a regular public company, he hadn't had so much voting power, they would have canceled the project. I'm sure they would have. You know, and that brings me to another person with a lot of power, um, the chairman of Tesla, and how you see Tesla in the future and and how it might grow. You have a, a chapter called um, The Roadmap, which is about that industry. Um, what do you think of Tesla and the future? Well, well, again, that's another story of, you know, one of these contingencies of history. Uh, there was a young man who was obsessed with electricity named J.B. Straubel, and somehow he got a lunch with uh, uh, Elon Musk in, the early, in 2003, fish restaurant in Los Angeles. And uh, uh, J.B. wanted to convince him about an electric airplane, and Musk says, not interested in that. He says, what about an electric car? You know, he says, I might really be interested in that. And uh, Tesla exists as a tiny company, but Musk moved in. JB became the chief technology officer for 15 years. And, you know, and they made Tesla, which seemed like this bizarre idea, work. And a few years ago, Musk said, you know, if they hadn't had that lunch in Los Angeles, they might not have been a Tesla. Wow, the serendipity of it yeah, and, is amazing. And mm -hmm. now today, of course, every automaker is rushing to have electric cars, partly because government policy is forcing them to do electric cars. And so everybody's rushing in that direction. And um, the state of California uh, has said that every car sold in the state after 2035 has to be an electric car. As I pointed out in an article uh, the other day in the Wall Street Journal, but they've also said is that every new car sold in California after 2035 has to have two and a half times more copper than a conventional car today, and uh, because it, because it needs it needs a lot more minerals, you know, less oil, more minerals. It's one thing or the other. Yeah, yeah. there's no free ride, literally. Right. That's right. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So it, it comes. And do you think that goal in California is reasonable? No, not particularly. I think it's going to be a real struggle to do that. I think that uh, it's becoming increasingly clear that the issue of minerals is a huge problem uh, that's only growing bigger. People haven't examined really, they've talked about it, but how much more mineral intensive it's going to be. And the new political the kind of new geopolitics of minerals that's coming. Well, and also um, the um, evidently there, uh, Chile, I guess this week nationalized its lithium supplies. So there are all kinds of things yeah. going well, on. Well, that's it. Yeah. Mm -hmm. So uh, let's take copper because copper is the metal of electrification. So much of the energy transition is about electrification. We'll come back to lithium, but um, copper um, 
40% of world copper comes from two countries, uh, Chile and Peru. Peru's government is in disarray because um, uh, the president was impeached and is now arrested. Uh, in Chile, you have a populist left-wing government that is basically, as kind of as you suggested, is hostile to the private sector uh, uh, and has a different agenda. The problem is that it takes a really long time to develop a mind, 16, 20 years or more. And um, it takes like billions and billions of dollars. And if you don't have political stability and a investment climate that has stability and predictability in it, people won't make the investment. And so you see, uh, you see, you know, you see the markets um, uh, struggling to meet the demand that has been legislated by governments. Well, um, I spoke recently with Mark Mills, and he talked about how um, in the United States, the permitting process and how long it takes in the U.S., but that some new trade law um, that rather than America first, if our allies mine, for example, Australia or Canada, and they are, their permitting times are, are contracted, that that might be a solution for the U.S. Mark Mills is extremely insightful on these issues. And he's quite right that permitting is a huge problem. It's a huge problem worldwide, actually. Many, many countries have permitting problems. When we did our copper study, we talked to countries in Africa, in Latin America. They all said their permitting issues of one kind or another. They're particularly protracted in the United States because of our regulatory and legal system that you can always find another reason to go to court and stop things. And, uh, you know, you, you sort of think if, if you tried to build the interstate uh, highway system today, the United States should never be able to get it done. You'd never get it permitted. I mean, you hear about runways that take 20 years to get permitted, bridges that take 15 years to be repaired. Uh, and this applies to uh, all energy resources, whether you're talking about oil and gas, whether you're talking about minerals, or whether you're talking about even wind and solar, being able them to get permits, uh, it's just a, it's a it's an issue in our in our legal and regulatory system that is very hard to get things done. It seems to me that electrification, although it's a goal, that it just the systems are so complex and so huge for energy that it's difficult to make that happen quickly. And this is and permits are just a good example. Yeah. Of that. I, Yes, I think that the notion that uh, that all the the change can come quickly in a in a economy of our size or in a hundred trillion dollar world economy that you can just change it in twenty five years in, in in a quarter of a century just it's just it's very ambitious. One of the things I got really interested in, in the new map is all around the world, you'd hear people talk about energy transition. So I said, okay, let me look back at energy transitions. And I could, you know, actually date, at least I went out on a limb and said the energy transition actually began in January 1709, when an English metal worker figured out you could make iron better using coal than wood. But all these energy transitions kind of took like a century. And the old energy never went away. I mean, you, you just, the world probably uses more wood today than it did um, you know, 50 or 75 years ago for, for energy, or certainly the world uses more, last year was a record for coal. Uh, 
but but and so but now to say that you're going to just transform the whole economy the whole technical system that all the pieces are going to be there and you're going to get it all permitted and done is um you know i would use the word ambitious ambitious you know what do you think about the biden administration's energy policies and if you were secretary of energy what would you do dan well i think you know i think the biden administration's its policies have evolved i think when it came in it was focused only on climate and then this problem that it seemed to be off the table came back this problem of energy security of prices going up and I think the administration has tried to have a, a broader policy now. We had uh, at our big CIRWI conference this year and last year, we had Secretary of Energy Jennifer Granholm and her message. I mean, there are a lot of people there from renewables and new technologies and power, but to the oil and gas people there was, you know, can you increase production so we can keep prices down? Because one of the things, even from that point of view, if you have an energy crisis, your energy transition is going to be harder. So I think it's it's kind of, you know, it's it's trying to, it's moving on two tracks at the same time because the world really changed uh, over the last year and a half in terms of what the energy issues are and the issues that seem to be off the table, energy security have come back uh, with a very powerful force. You know, your book was written in 2020, approximately, and during the height of the pandemic. And now as we're getting away from COVID, how do you think that COVID created a permanent change of some sort, not just the temporary demand shock? Yeah. Uh, well, let me say, I, I revised the book. The, the paperback that's out now is revised a, a year later. So it's, 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 it's been brought more up to date, you know, and responded to the bite, really responded to the Biden administration, responded to these issues about minerals that have become so much more significant. I think we're still seeing the impacts of uh, COVID. Uh, nothing like this had really ever happened to the world before. I mean, you, you can't even compare it to the great influenza of, uh, that came at the, towards the end of the First World War. And um, I think it's brought many profound changes in terms of where people work and how they work, therefore, where and how they consume energy or don't consume energy. I think that's a, uh, I think it's, you know, it's certainly affected a generation of students. Um, and, you know, I think we're still assimilating it. During the height of COVID, people were saying, oh, we've now reached, you know, peak demand in oil, it's going to go down. And my comment at that time was, you probably shouldn't generalize about something like that in the middle of a pandemic. And that, in fact, uh, with time, we've now seen oil demand uh, start, you know, growing substantially again, gas demand growing, obviously renewables coming on. Um, so, you know, so I think there's so many ways that it's kind of affected the fabric of life in ways that just... Um, were different than what people would have expected in, in 2019. And that clearly has energy ramifications. If you'd like to become a supporter of EconView and the Hale Report, please visit our website and become a subscriber. There are also a lot of things going on in terms of the Middle East right now. 
and the changes that have taken place in diplomacy with the Saudis and Iran and China in general. Now that we're self-sufficient, do you think we care as much about what's going on in the Middle East? Has there been a power vacuum that was created because we didn't, you know, like Afghanistan and Iraq? And, you know, in your book, The Prize, you talk about uh, the Middle East as a kind of colonial construct. And is that continuing, but with just different players now? Well, by colonial construct, what I, you know, what I meant is that, you know, a, a state system, a system of nation states was created uh, at the end of the First World War. And um, you've had, whether it was ISIS, whether it was decades before President Nasser in Egypt, whether it's Iran in a different way, people have wanted to overturn that state system. And that's been a source of uh, much of the kind of constant battling that goes on in the Middle East. Um I think that um, what's, and that question is the U.S. withdrawing. I'll tell you that the, the Gulf countries there, Gulf countries think the answer is yes. They think that the U.S. is less interested in the region and committed to it, that, uh, that they didn't see a strong response when uh, Iran or, or Iranian proxies sent uh, uh, drones into, um, into Abu Dhabi or did the same a little bit earlier in Saudi Arabia. So there is a definite reconfiguration that the U.S. is seen as less engaged in the region, that it doesn't, you know, it was much easier to be engaged when the U.S. really depended on the global market in a way that it doesn't. Now, of course, I just need a parenthesis. It's hard for people to understand. The U.S. exports oil and imports oil but you net it out and, and uh, because it makes markets more efficient and it ends up being basically self-sufficient. And uh, I think you know, Saudi Arabia, it's a different generation in charge now. And um, it's a country uh, that sees itself playing a global role and not a regional role. Uh, and I think what you alluded to, to have China brokering um, not a peace treaty, but a, a, a reopening of relations between Saudi Arabia and Iran is pretty darn significant and a pretty strong message. And of course, China, unlike the United States, is highly dependent upon the flow of oil from the Middle East. Exactly. So but I yeah. think this is now we're seeing an assertion of Chinese diplomacy, not economic diplomacy, but uh, geopolitical diplomacy. Uh, and uh, Saudi Arabia you know, continues to have a very important strategic relationship with the United States. Uh, but it also has a relationship with Russia, which it didn't have before. And it has a really important relationship with uh, China. So it is a reconfiguration. And I'll point to something that didn't get a lot of attention, but the peace treaty between certain Arab states, particularly the United Arab Emirates, uh, the UAE and Israel, is very significant. It's significant economically, but I think it was also a view by those two countries that the U.S. was pulling back from the region and that these two countries that are the, you know, have very strong military security, you know, that that they needed to work together uh, in order to deal with what they both see as a regional threat, which is Iran. Now, the picture has been confused now with Saudi Arabia. You know, this is not normalization between Saudi Arabia and Iran, but it's certainly a reducing of tensions. And from the Saudi point of view, it's also in to try and 
reduce Iranian support for the healthy rebels in Yemen who have been at war with Saudi Arabia and have been lobbying missiles and drones into Saudi Arabia. And and a war that's been costing Saudi Arabia some estimated a billion dollars a month. It seems to me from the Chinese point of view that they're just trying to diversify their risks. And that's why they're also a leader in unconventional, you know, energy as well. And if you look back at the beginning of World War II, um, you know, Japan went on the offensive because of an energy blockade. Yeah. So is it a good thing that they're diversifying so that they're not? Well, I think that um, that's right. I I mean, that was maybe one of the triggers. Uh, You know, Japan was launched military aggression, oil cut off. And, you know, in the prize, I have a... um, Admiral, Japanese admiral saying our fleet will become scarecrows and, you know, and there, and then Pearl Harbor ensued. I mean, so the war was not because of the oil, but that was one of the triggers of it. Um, I think that, um, I, I think the Chinese are very focused on making sure that they have diversified sources of energy. So even before this current war, you know, they, this big power Siberia pipeline that takes gas to uh, uh, to uh, China. There's a pipeline that goes there. Uh, uh, the Chinese have been importing energy from Central Asia, but the Middle East still looms very large for them, but they do want uh, diversified resources. Uh, the war in the Russian invasion of, uh, of Ukraine has, you know, I think there are momentous economic consequences because Russia's main market for its energy, its main economic was Europe. Its main economic integration with Europe was with Europe. That's over now, and so China really becomes a dependency, an economic dependency. Uh, Russia, I'm sorry, Russia becomes an economic dependency of China. You know, so that's a very big change, and it's and if you saw the visit of President Xi to Moscow. It's pretty clear that Russia is, you know, a dependency, a junior partner uh, uh, to China. And for China, of course, the relationship with Russia is important because Russia is its ally uh, in the um, in the opposition to what they see as a U.S. Uh, centered international economic order. Although it's, I would really say U.S. U.S. and Europe. Uh, I saw. I have a story in the new map that really captured it. I was at the uh, when you could still go to it at the Saint Petersburg International Economic Forum in uh, I think it's 2019, and President Putin's guest there on the stage was President Xi, and President Putin said to President Xi, "I apologize. I kept you up till 4 a.m. your time talking," and Xi replied, "We never have enough time to talk." They have met so frequently. On his last trip, uh, Xi and Putin had four hours by themselves together, uh, and they clearly um, are very aligned. Uh, and uh, you know, uh, China needs Russia as its as its partner in this world that I now describe as a you know era of great power competition. What a turnaround from the Reagan era. Yeah, that's for right. For China to be in this position, it's a com- complete yeah. uh, well, turnaround. So I thought when I was 
as I said, when I was writing the new map, I was really thinking I'm writing a new a book about the origins of a new Cold War. And Lyric, you will understand this as well as anybody would understand it, you know, just what the change is. And I tried to find a term to describe it, and I came up with the term WTO, Consensus World Trade Organization. It was really globalization. We're all in this together. Everybody benefits from a growing, integrated economy. Supply chains are great because they promote efficiency, and they're just about efficiency. And then starting around 2015, some say earlier, maybe later, that began to uh, erode and entered this thing that has this very sort of pre-First World War sound to it, great power competition. And that's where we are now. And it's become sharper and sharper. Uh, you know, it was this week, uh, Secretary, Treasury Secretary Yellen gave a speech about U.S.-Chinese economic relations that kind of sort of tried to have it both ways, saying we're integrated if we stop being integrated it's going to be an economic disaster for both countries but by the way national security is going to be the predominant factor in economic relations between uh or benchmark between our two countries you know so it's and the chi you know the chi chinese messages about self-reliance and uh you know uh the, the u.s is leading trying to contain uh china prevented from developing i mean they have uh, a very, you know, deeply embedded narrative. And it seems very hard just when you're, you know, when Xi and Biden met in Bali, that seemed to lower the tension. And then that confounded balloon flew across the United States and Secretary Blinken's trip got quote, postponed to China, which was meant to see if it could reduce tension. But, uh, Day by day, the tension seems to get higher. And, um, you know, and of course, Ukraine was another shock to that relationship. You have an entire chapter on Ukraine in your book that was written before the invasion. Um, one of the, the thoughts I had reading that um, was that maybe Edward Snowden precipitated some of these issues in a way that I hadn't contemplated not just by giving intelligence, but because of the diplomatic moves as a result of him, of him going to Moscow, that he was a much bigger player than I imagined. Well, it, it really broke. I mean, Obama and Putin were going to meet. They didn't meet. And I think, I think you can start to say, if I get the years right, that that started this kind of deeper division and breakdown in communication between the United States and Russia uh, that then sort of embodied itself over Ukraine and then Putin may, you know, grabbed the Crimea. So I think, you know, I think, I think you're right that it was not just a question of the secrets that he stole, but um, the consequences of it. And so often people don't see the consequences or the consequences of the consequences that, that follow. It's like George Mitchell in another yeah. way. <laughs> yeah, and that was in a positive uh -huh. way. This is in a very mm -hmm. negative way. Um, yeah, I mean, just, just thinking about it, that's, that's right, because there was a sense that, um, you know, that 
it made sense. Russia had nuclear weapons, integrate Russia into the global economy. But, um, you know, the untold, you know, the story of Snowden is not fully told to this day. He's, of course, now, and now, of course, he's a Russian citizen. What an what a, a amazing tale. Um, you know, the one thing that I think about a lot is sanctions and whether sanctions are useful or they don't really accomplish their goals. And, and you wrote something I thought was really uh, interesting. You said, there's a risk that the commanding position of the United States derived from its capital markets and the dollar could be eroded over time by over-reliance on financial sanctions because nations will fall, find alternatives. And that certainly seems to be the the case right now. Yeah, there's, and I'm sure you've discussed this with others of, of your guests, the question of the role of the dollar. Right. But I think that um, we've seen in the last few days, there's President Lula of Brazil in Beijing talking about, uh, you know, let's get off the dollar. Right. Let's find a way around the dollar. Now, it's um, that's a particular popular thing with people who have sanctions applied to them because the way the sanctions so much depend upon uh, access dollars passing, you know, the, the primacy of the dollar in the financial system. And so we have a renewed discussion and certainly Russia and China, you know, would want to price oil and, and other commodities in uh, RMBs, uh, talk about doing it in oil. Uh, and so they're, you know, in fact, um, even former secretaries of treasury have warned against uh, over-reliance on sanctions, but that's the tool. Those are the tools you have. I mean, I think before the invasion of Ukraine, when it was obviously imminent that it was going to come, you heard people saying, we're going to put such powerful sanctions on Russia that it will deter them. Well, it didn't. I mean, the sanctions have hurt Russia and maybe they'll, you know, they are pretty massive, but countries find workarounds. And and Russia can turn to its good friend, its new good friend Iran, which has found lots of ways to work around. And when you have China, if the front door slams, you have China at your back door. Uh, you know, China produces a lot of things, right? And so there's utility there. It kind of reminds me of locally our story here in Chicago that the new mayor is talking about significantly raising taxes, not realizing. The people have choices and businesses have choices. They don't have to remain here. They can do other things. Yeah, I mean, mean, that was so surprising that he would want to put that out there uh, rather than saying, how do I work with the business community to, uh, you know, in a sense, making them an enemy instead of, you know, how do you get them to revitalize it? Because it is just an invitation to people uh, to, you know, pack up, move as, yeah, as as several of your major corporations uh, have done. Uh, but it's, you know, it's it's not an understanding of how economic decision-making is made. And that's it applies to what we were just talking about as well, I think, is, is, the, is the point. Um, I wanted to ask you a kind of uh, a little re- a related question to energy, but not something that I've seen you write about or talk about before. In previous, uh, in economic history, silver was very important. Gold was important. And then we came into a fiat-based currency system. And so those things were no longer the the same. But now um, we have a new kind of global currency, cryptocurrencies, and they're based on calculations that are made that cost energy. 
Um, do you, but they're related to energy. And I'm just wondering, do you think that it makes sense in a world that is most dependent on energy more than any other single thing to have a currency that is somehow linked to energy consumption, just as, as currencies were linked to silver, which was the medium of trade long ago? So I'm just putting that out there to see if you have any thoughts about that. Well, Lyric, that's a very intriguing and interesting thought because obviously cryptocurrencies are very energy intensive, electricity intensive, uh, and I, I, which is an issue just about how much electricity they use. I hadn't thought about you know what it means that you're in a sense basing these new currencies uh, on. Um, on the access to that kind of uh, electricity, but you know, but as to the future role of cryptocurrencies, I, I think wouldn't you say? Well, let me turn it around. <laughs> Would you say the high, I mean the high water mark of enthusiasm about cryptos has has eroded now? Um, I think it's like any new technology that you you were talking about before. You know, the change to to uh, coal for example, from wood, I think these things take a lot of time. And of course, along that way, I think there are ups and downs. But um, I don't think that given the solutions that it might have, and especially if the dollar becomes weaker, I, I, I'm very convinced that there's a future. I don't know if it's Bitcoin exactly or what it might be, but I think something in that realm, I think that what we'll be doing 50 years from now will be completely different than the kind of currencies we have now. Do you think that one boost to cryptocurrency would not come from people who either distrust government or who like the new thing or are drug dealers, right. but it will actually come from people, countries that want to find a way to divorce themselves from the dollar? I think so. And look at El Salvador has already done that. So they're an example and they have a very rocky road in terms of their internal politics. But if you're looking at alternatives, it does provide an alternative. And yeah. it's fast. I mean, I, it's very fast. Yeah, I mean, yeah. I, I have heard, of, I mean, in Southeast Asia, discussion about payment systems based upon cryptocurrencies or digital currencies that are managed in China and a, a different way to tie countries uh, into a Chinese economic orbit. I mean, those countries in Southeast Asia, well, I hear this actually from countries around the world, uh, in Africa, in Asia, in Latin America, saying we have a very important strategic relationship and economic relationship with the United States, but China's our most important market. You know, don't make us choose. The prime minister of uh, Singapore, a year or two ago, wrote a very sort of thoughtful essay on that subject in in foreign affairs. Uh, you know, just and this is a an issue, and in a way, we see it with President Lula in Brazil. I mean, he sells stuff to to China. China's his market. I think part of it is generational too. I mean, I think something like half of all young Americans own have owned crypto, for example. And so they don't, they think of it, yeah, and it's fast and, you know, you can send it to different countries and there are no barriers. So I think that the current, you know, older regime of people in power don't quite 
have the same. So I think over time, as those younger people come into their own, that it will be, it's far more accepted. Sort of like gay marriage, right? (laughs) And eventually everybody sort of looks at it in a different way. But it it does, um, unlike your comparison, it does really change the role of governments and the role of governments in the economy. Yes. So, and it began with, of course, they, the in 2008 or nine, I think, cryptocurrencies really started because of the financial system crisis at that time. And now we are in another situation where it seems there's maybe a lull, but there's still less faith in banks than there used to be at this time last year. So, I, yeah. And the Federal Reserve, some people might say that they you know, overdid it and then underdid it in terms of interest rates and vice versa. So there's, I think there's a, an erosion of faith. Right. And we're still in this vice of, uh, do you address inflation? Right. Or do you address the economy weakening? And um, that, uh, I mean, one thing that became clear, inflation was not transitory. Well, what I see here in the middle West is that the primary problem people have is getting people. In terms of workers. Workers. And the workers, you know, when when jobs went to China, the people who remained jobless here were not retrained, for example. Here's, here's a fascinating thing. The labor force participation rate of females is higher in Japan than it, than it is in the United States. That's amazing. <laughs> and when you consider the rigidities of Japanese culture, that is quite amazing. It is. So the world is changing and it's it's not what it maybe used to be. Now, um, that leads me to another subject, which is climate change. And you've talked about the Paris Agreement in 2015. What is the future of international cooperation on these or any other issues? Does that also seem to have eroded? I think, yes, I think it looked a more... Um, the path looked clearer and easier, I think, really before COVID and certainly before uh, before what before the war in, in Ukraine. And I did a paper for the IMF on what they called the bumps on the road to energy transition. And there, I think there are four big questions, at least four that are there, and maybe more that have just made you know realize how challenging it is. Number one is the return of energy security. You can't, I mean, there's Germany setting up and, and, and uh, uh, greenlighting very fast uh, five terminals to import liquefied natural gas. It would have been unthinkable. At the same time, they shut down three nuclear, their last three nuclear facilities. Yeah, that's so, so inexplicable. It's so inexplicable. And that turns out to have been a shutting down their nuclear power, which is 25% of electricity, is a big strategic mistake. And I think it was because they forgot about energy security. And, you know, Russia Russia had always been portrayed, and it portrayed itself as a reliable supplier of energy. It said, whatever happens economic, you know, politically, we're, we're in this commercially. And Putin then started squeezing the gas supplies to Germany to virtually nothing. Uh, as punishment and pressure, trying to um, trying to undermine the coalition uh, opposing his war in uh, Ukraine. So one is energy security, and you could see that with the Biden administration that uh, 
if, if you don't have energy security, energy transition is much more difficult. I think the second issue is what we talked about before, simply the scale of a $100 trillion economy. How quickly can you do it? The two other things that really stand out to me is one is that, you know, you, you'll remember people used to talk about the North-South divide, which was really about commodities, uh, the price of commodities. Now it's about climate policy because the South says, well, wait a second, we need economic growth. We need a natural gas pipeline. We need to, you know, we need to develop our conventional resources. We can't do it all with renewables, and uh, uh, it's, you know, it's it's, you know, I can just point to any number of examples where that's a real issue. I was speaking at the IMF last week, and you know, you could, I could cite issues that that demonstrated. And then the fourth thing is what we're talking about before, which is to go from an energy intensive to an increasingly mineral intensive economy. You need a lot of mining. You mentioned you mentioned the nationalization of lithium in Chile. Well, that's surely not going to facilitate development of lithium. Now it will be a spur to innovation and new technologies. But in the meantime, if you're trying to do this fast, these are all really important considerations. We've been doing a, a, a thing around the world called the Global Energy Solutions Initiative. We've been S and P Global working with the International Energy Forum, listening to different voices. And you hear very different voices in the developing world uh, than you will hear in Brussels or Washington or Berlin on these issues. So finally, getting back to the big picture that we started with, um, you say that globalization was fueled by energy, but that the momentum is now going in reverse. And that's concerning. Um, you wrote, the world has become more fractured. With the resurgence of nationalism and populism and distrust, great power competition, and a rising and the rising politics of suspicion and resentment, globalization doesn't go away, but it becomes more fragmented and more contentious, adding to the troubles along the already troubled path to economic growth. So, what that seems to me that you're saying, Dan, is that we're going to experience slower growth because of all these factors. Is that how you're looking at the world now? I would say so because, you know, supply chains were about efficiency and companies worked on the playbook of globalization. Now they have to rethink them and reshoring, you know, or, or uh, French shoring means higher costs. Uh, and it also means that you don't get the most efficient solutions. So I think there's been a great sort of uh, economic bounty and downward pressure on inflation because of globalization. So I think it means uh, with the moving back to the U.S. where costs are higher or elsewhere, I, mean, I think it means uh, is more inflationary and certainly would mean uh, slower economic growth. It will be a world uh, that won't work as efficiently as it did before, a world with more barriers, more suspicion, and more tension. And I think uh, companies will struggle to say how to operate in this more complex world. I completely agree with that, yeah. So on that somewhat sobering note, Daniel Jurgen, thank you for joining me today. And how can our listeners follow you in the future on Twitter, your website? On Twitter, Twitter and LinkedIn would be the main places. And I think it may be sobering, but it's, I think it's important to be realistic and to look at the world as it is and to think about, yes, all the opportunities that are there, how things 
you know, amazing innovation, so forth, but to realize that we're in a world that is higher risk uh, than we've been accustomed to uh, since the end of the Cold War. So any thoughts about your next book? Well, I feel that I live every day the new map. These themes are the ones one grapples with them every day. So, you know, I'm so much involved with them that it's hard to see what the new book will be, but there will be a new book. But of course, one of the lessons too that I've learned over the years, Lyric, is that you have to let enough time pass so you forget how hard it was to do the last book before you start the next one. Sort of like having children. <laughs> I'm told people <laughs> do women. use yeah, people do use that <laughs> that metaphor. I can't speak about it personally, but it is uh, what has been uh, been mentioned before. But you know, it's nine months with a um, a book. It can be you know three years or five years. So it's uh, and the world changes. And certainly, uh, what I tried to do in a, in the new map was to look down the road and see what's coming. And uh, what's what's coming is now here. Well, I can't urge our listeners enough um, to buy your new book and to read it. I think it's really thought-provoking, and it's perfect for the time that we're living in right now. Well, thank you very much, Lyric, and thank you for the opportunity to join you today. You're welcome. And finally, thanks to all the people behind the scenes who make EconView possible, managing editor Ying Zan and our producer Sam Fu. If you'd like to subscribe to our monthly newsletter as well as listen to our podcast, please visit our website, econview.com. Thank you again. Thank you.